of our fundamentalists. Welcome back to another episode of your favorite brown babes breaking down taboos and dissecting Desi culture across the diaspora. I'm Mehek. And I'm Faiza. And today we are continuing our politics series. We started this off with Zoran Mamdani, and then we talked to um, Sunia Khan, who's an AG with the Civil Rights Bureau. And today we're joined by Jocelyn Kaur, who is a lifelong resident of Glen Oaks in Queens and a graduate of CUNY Hunter. Um, Jocelyn is running to represent District 23 in the New York City Council, and her work uh, her work in nonprofit to support immigrant elected officials across the country has helped usher in a new generation of first-time candidates like herself. For years, Jocelyn has been committed to um, uh, organizing. She's an advocate on behalf of survivors of sexual violence in her schools, and her parents, Sikh Punjabi immigrants who move and carry New York City, are essential workers. Jocelyn's mother works as a grocery store worker, and her father is a yellow taxi cab worker who is who was deep impacted by the 2014 medallion crash and if elected Jocelyn would be the first woman and first person of color to ever represent her district so welcome Jocelyn we're so excited to have you thank you so much um, so I think first things first I know I mentioned this before we started recording but we had Zoran on who's the first South Asian man to be elected to his position you're running to be the first South Asian woman for to represent your district so what is it about Queens? that's leading the charge in this progressive movement and like the face of Desi politics. Yeah, I mean, thanks for having me. I think this is an exciting moment for Queens to really be leading the charge on what the face of political representation looks like. I mean, we have over 2 million people who live in Queens alone, and it's considered the hub of the entire world where we have some of the most diverse communities, uh, not only just in New York City, but across the world. And so what I think is so exciting is that we actually have some of the most densely populated Punjabi populations outside of India, right in Richmond Hill, in Glen Oaks and Belrose. This is where our families have congregated. This is where our, where our parents have settled and immigrated to. And I think it presents an exciting challenge for us to not only carve out a really historical moment in terms of representation, but usher in policies that are actually going to transform people's material lives. And, you know, while it's upsetting that we're, we are only getting the first in 2021. Um, I think that's going to build up the pipeline going forward of just even better representation of women, of South Asians. And for myself, as someone who's Sikh and Punjabi, that's one of the first that we'll ever have in New York state politics at large. And I'm really proud to hopefully be the first, but not the only one, too. Just saying one of the really exciting things or one of the really interesting things about first generation um, progressive politicians that we're seeing is just how varied their paths have been to get to where they are. So can you talk us talk to us a little bit about your journey? What led you here coming from where you came from? What brought you here? Yeah, I mean, if you asked me a year ago today, if I had plans to run for office, never, never would have come to me. You know, I always joke that running for office was the secret that everyone else was in on except for me. So when I had talked to some of my friends about like, hey, you know, I'm really thinking about running for city council. What do you think? They're like, oh yeah, we were waiting for you to announce. And I, that had never registered for me. I'd never understood why. And I think for me, it was a little bit of a reluctance to get involved in local politics because I didn't see anyone who looked like me. I didn't see anybody who was championing the policies that mattered to me. But, you know, what I always say is that no one knows policy better than the people who have been failed by it. And myself and my parents have been failed by it a lot. That taxi medallion market crash back in 2014 pummeled hundreds of thousands of families across New York City into massive debt. And so when you see austerity, 
budget cuts and policies that are driving people out of their homes. These are the kinds of things that make you think, well, you know what? Our elected officials should be working for us um, and not the other way around. And that was really the leading charge for me to think about. It was actually city and state policy that put me in the position that I was in, right? So I dropped out of university. I was on food stamps for two years. It was a really difficult path to even just get here um, and even graduate school to begin with. So, you know, there's a number of barriers that were put up that prevented me from running for local office. But I think it takes bravery and it takes courage to say that we're challenging systems at the end of the day that are going to disenfranchise our neighbors. So I'm really excited to be uh, challenging the systems and breaking the barriers, breaking the mold of what a candidate should be, because I don't have a background in politics. I don't have a background in uh, I don't have a public service degree or anything. I'm a 24-year-old who is an organizer and just has love for my community. And I think that's the kind of leadership we need at the most local level. Um, first, I just want to say, how unflappable are you that that phone started ringing in the background and you didn't even flinch? <laughs> you just kept going with your answer. It was amazing. Um, so I... You mentioned, you know, first time, a lot of first time people, uh, first time people running for office and how important city and state policy is. Um, and we've been talking about it a lot, just I think the quarantine, the quarantine series that we did once the shutdown started has really illuminated a lot of the inequities that we're facing on a, on a, on a very local level and how important it is that people get involved in local politics. So this is very new for people. And like taking it back to 101 level type stuff for our listeners and for myself, frankly, what does city council do and why is it important that people know who's on their city council and how city council impacts their daily lives? Yeah. I mean, so as a candidate, I have to do something called call time where I got to call up voters who are in our district and, you know, I'm going on about my spiel, like, hey, I'm running for city council. And they're like, what's a city council member? So <laughs> I've gotten this question multiple times, right? And I, you know, I, I tell people sometimes it, it's not the sexiest job, right? We're talking about budgets. We're talking about land use. We're talking about rezonings, things that are way overhead of your average voter, right? These aren't the kinds of things that people are thinking of when they're trying to pay their bills. And so a city council member is one of the most local positions um, of governance. And something that's really exciting is that you know, New York City has over a $9 billion um, annual budget that we have to negotiate to keep our schools fully funded to make sure that we're addressing this COVID-19 pandemic and getting everyone the kind of PPE that they need and deserve and supporting our frontline workers at the end of the day, too. So we're negotiating all of this money, rerouting it in the right places where it needs to go to maintain that dignity for the most marginalized people. And that is really important for a lot of our working class immigrant communities who build up the diversity of Queens and build up New York City. So for us to know who your city council member is, um, that means knowing who is making life-changing decisions about you and your family. That's really what it comes down to for me in terms of our city council. We have an incredibly large uh, congregation of 51 city council members. And so, you know, this is an exciting time for people to get involved in local civic engagement. And I think people have only gotten even more excited about that since the 2016 presidential election when Trump got elected and now in 2020, now that he's been voted out. So it's, an, it's a really exciting opportunity to get involved. What was your campaign path like once you decided to, to do this, once you decided to run for office, even though you were the last to get the memo from, <laughs> from your circle, <laughs> um, what was campaigning like for you, not only as a first time 
um, representative or candidate, but also as a woman in this field, in this area, in this climate, in this society, and in your community. Um, so I, I'd like to to tailor my question. Um, yeah. What was the campaigning experience like for you within the progressive movement? And then also what was like the community response? Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you what, it's a lot different than it was when I was campaigning and volunteering for other campaigns in this area, right? Other progressives who were running for Congress and running for assembly. We were out in the streets. There was a campaign office. Uh, My campaign office now is all of my campaign materials in the trunk of my car and in my dining room. (laughs) So this is what the office looks like in a pandemic. And it's not the same. It's not ideal. But, you know, you have your campaign headquarters over Slack. And that, that's how you, how you engage. Everything's pretty much digital right now. But I think when I was first getting started, I heard the same old adages from people who are part of the old guard, right? People who have been in politics longer than I've been alive telling me that I don't have enough experience. Maybe you should take, hey, maybe you should take a job in a local legislator's office and then you'll kind of get the right experience. But I think what I, what I quickly learned was that by nature of who I am as a young woman of color, as somebody who's a recent college graduate, as someone who's, who grew up working class and low income, I'm never going to be the right candidate for the establishment, right? I'm never going to be the kind of person that they want in office. So why, why should I wait and compromise my own values to, to be who they want me to be? And I think that moment of clarity was really something that pushed me to say, I have to do this to kind of chart the path for other people to run after me, right? It's not just about my campaign. It's about everyone that comes after this and people who are woven into the, in the movement of our campaign right now. So, you know, it's, it's been difficult, but I think it proposes an opportunity for us to shift the realm of what political representation is supposed to look like, right? What is an elected supposed to be? And I think AOC alone has really been the temperature check of what that's supposed to be. She was 28 years old. Nobody thought she was going to win, right? She was outspent, outraised, um, but she had people behind the movement. And I think that's what people are looking to right now, a movement-oriented candidate who's an organizer and is going to bring people behind something that's actually going to change people's lives. So I don't think of my identities as a woman of color, as a South Asian young woman, as barriers to entry. I think of these as intrinsic identities that inform how I want to legislate for other people's lives too. Can I just say, when we talk about the establishment, we think of like these career politicians, right, who have their spiel down pat, who know how to politic and, uh, you know, build their base. But I have to say, the AOCs, even like Zoran, and speaking with you, these first-time candidates, these first-time representatives, there's a sincerity there and a clarity that I have not hand to God seen Mm. in any established politician. So I really, really appreciate that as a voter. It's something that's so refreshing to see. So, you know, hats off to you for coming with that clarity and coming with that confidence, because you're right. These aren't, these should not be barriers. These should not be obstacles. Certainly not in a society and an area as diverse as New York City. These are just part and parcel of who you are, representative of the rest of the community that you serve. Mm -hmm. And I think we lose track of that because of the establishment. And there's really no effing reason to. Right. I mean, like, when you think about how long some of these people have been in office, people who haven't been challenged for over a decade, because people just accept that 
oh, well, you're a Democrat. I'll just check you off on the box because it's easy, right? We're not looking for political expedience or political convenience here, right? And I think that if you've been in office for so long, you need to respond to how communities are changing. How are movements developing? And how are you responding to those moments of crisis? I mean, just look at the, you know, the fights for Black Lives Matter over this past summer and how we didn't respond to the need to um, you know, divest from the police and actually fund our social services, right? You have to respond to these moments that are going to really challenge your moral clarity and um, challenge your own moral compass. Like, why, why did you run in the first place, right? And I think sometimes that gets lost for a lot of career politicians. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's interesting about you mentioned the barriers barriers to entry don't just affect the people who who want to run, but it's also diffuses into the community and it disenfranchises and disillusions people, right? Because then it's right. like, well, that's the, the that's how they're allowed. They you know the status quo is rem- gets to remain in place because there's no avenue to actually change it hmm. because there's so many barriers to actually even get to get to the table. Uh, And we keep hearing a lot about community organizing, I think, especially in the run up to the 2020 election. And we saw what an impact Stacey Abrams work has done in Georgia. It flipped it blue. And, you know, a a lot of community organizers are now going to Texas and Florida to see if they can flip a lot of those districts and even the state Mm -hmm. um, together. So I'd love to hear more about your background as a grassroots organizer, why that's so important and why that seems to be the the thing, the change we're seeing in the progressive movement, why that makes people a good candidate and then a good elected official once they get into office. Yeah. I mean, I'll say that like people are looking to battleground states like Georgia because and Texas, right, as these places for the hotbeds of how we can flip places blue. But you look at New York and people say, oh, well, it's a pretty reliable Democratic stronghold. But you know, I think what's important to remember is that not all Democrats are created equally, right? And like, Mahak, you're shaking your head because you know, right? Like, all of our Democrats are I was are telling Faiza, I live in Albany and we had straight up a Trump merchandise store. So don't mm-hmm. tell me York is comfortably <laughs> blue because up here in no man's land, it's not. Or even the even these districts like uh, uh, I'm in AOC's district. Yeah. Our Democrat, the incumbent that she ran against was a Democrat, but he was is in deep with the establishment and in the pocket of Wall Street and all that kind of stuff. And then we're right. seeing a lot of that. There's this like real break between establish uh, like the establishment, the DNC, and then Democratic socialists. Right. Um, and that the, like whether you know a two-party system works or not, there is a lot of fracturing we're seeing on both sides of the Republican Party, where you have Trump Republicans and and regular Republicans, and then you have mm-hmm. Democrats also facing this in their own party as right. well. I mean, that's why we have to get organized as Democrats, because people forget that, you know, while Republicans are engaging a lot of really awful bad faith arguments and are negotiating our lives away at the decision making table, they're also organized, right? They're also able to pull in the funding channels that they need to win things like packing their packing the courts with Republicans and making sure that we get SCOTUS appointments like, you know, Kavanaugh to threaten the right, our right to Roe v. Wade and abortion access in this country, right? So they're just as organized and we need to meet that, right? Because at some point, there's no meeting meeting across the aisle. There's no extending that olive branch because people want to take your dignity away. And so I think that's why it's so important for organizers to be in office because 
we can't be bought out, right? I think of Shirley Chisholm, who always said that she's unbought and unbossed. And that's a, a really important principle for us as democratic socialists, right? To say that we're refusing uh, fossil fuel industry money, we're refusing corporate dollars, we're refusing real estate money and police money too. This is what's considered that realm of like dark money that you know, uh, allows favors to be exchanged across that legislative cycle, right? So if I give you some money, it's that quid, quid pro quo, right? I give you some money, you help me pass a legislation that's going to protect our real estate ventures that are in turn going to be the ones who are complicit in pricing people out of their homes and evicting people and foreclosing on our homes too. And so for us as organizers, it's deeply important to resist these systems, right? That's what we're talking about, systemic power that's selling our lives away. And so what's really exciting for us, um, you know, in this whole slate of democratic socialists running for city council is that we're doing consensus building. We're doing deep organizing, right? We're talking to people on the ground because it's not enough to just go through call lists that you bought from somebody else, relying on the county structures to get you your wins. You have to be there in the community and talk to people one-on-one. -on -one. That's how you do what we call like expanding the electorate, bringing new people into the political fold who haven't been activated yet. Right. And, and that, that's what politics needs to be about, about the most local level of civic engagement. And that's what an organizer does to really commit to those difficult conversations and also a deep commitment to saying that it doesn't matter how much harm somebody has caused. Everyone deserves housing, health care and education, the most basic uh, building blocks of a dignified life. And that's really what we're set out to do. Chislaine, as a candidate who is, like you said, unbought and who has worked actively to embed herself in the community and really understand the needs of the community, what are your goals for your first term as a councilwoman, council member, councilwoman, both? Council member is usually the convention, but councilwoman doesn't sound so bad. Either. Sounds pretty cool. <laughs> it's nice to hear it out loud also. I mean, you know, there's so many important goals that are really central to our campaign, but I think one that's really um, at the precipice, especially of this COVID-19 pandemic, is winning 100% social housing or affordable housing, right? I mean, myself, I grew up in a, uh, in a household where as a result of the taxi medallion market crash, we hadn't even recovered fully, right, from the 2008 housing market crash, right? So it was a crisis on top. It was a housing crisis. Then it was an economic crisis. And now we're in a public health crisis, right? And there's never that time to repair from each individual one. So for us, you know, I remember having to, and we still do to this day, getting letters from the city that we might be subject to a tax lien, uh, meaning that your home could be foreclosed upon or sold away if you don't sufficiently pay off your water bills um, and your property taxes, right? And that's incredibly scary. If you don't have somewhere to live, if you don't have the dignity of shelter, then you're set to lose employment, you're set to lose education, you're set to lose so much on top of that. And so I think what's going to be really critical for us is to, you know, not only resist the power of private development that is going to raise rents, price people out of their out of their homes and increase rates of homelessness across New York City. But, you know, our, our goal has to be to keep people housed, whether it's our seniors who are living alone or, or students like me who don't even have any assets. I don't have anything to own. Right. I don't own anything. And so I think um, housing is at the precipice of that. And I think in addition, um, what's really going to be critical is, um, uh, you know, really addressing climate change and, and you know, the fights for environmental justice that are really tied to our fights around environmental racism too. 
Um, you know, we, my district in particular is home to some of the biggest parks uh, across, uh, across the entire city um, and across all of the borough of Queens. And if we're categorically defunding uh, or cutting spending and, and budget for our parks and sanitation departments, you know, and, and this isn't like the most exciting issue to begin with, but it's important because this is where our families congregate. This is where our people need to go. And if we're not resisting the construction of toxic peaker plants, if we're not helping our homes become retrofitted to be climate resilient, then we're going to see even bigger climate disasters um, going ahead. And I think even the Biden administration has a massive responsibility to respond to some of these federal level crises that are going to really harm us at the city level. So, you know, when it's whether it's care for our seniors, building out a, a real plan uh, to bail out our uh, excluded workers and actually winning universal health care. I think these are some of the most basic foundations of life that have been privatized by a number of corporations so that we don't actually get to enjoy all of these services at large. So tying that all together, um, because you did mention the Biden administration, I would love to hear, given everything that's happened, especially everything that happened on January 6th, the lead up to the inauguration, um, and, and the reports that we're getting now of the of Congress people, AOC just did her live last night, and it was harrowing. And I was listening to it this morning, and I was yeah. tearing up listening to her her mm-hmm. experience and her recounting it. Um, what are you What are you most hopeful about with the Biden administration? Understanding that they it is pretty establishment, right? <laughs> right. It's not they're not doing anything crazy progressive, but yeah, if at um, all you are hopeful, <laughs> if you are hopeful, is there any? Uh, on both sides, like, what are you hopeful about? And then what are you, what are you keeping your eye on? And um, how do you hope to ensure that the work that you're doing uh, does ladder up to the state and federal level? Yeah. I mean, I'll I'll just say like, I was listening into AOC's live stream last night and it's incredibly painful, the kinds of trauma that you have to share in order to be believed about what actually happened to you, right? Whether it was the Capitol riots or it was the you know admission of sexual assault that she had gone through too. These are incredibly painful moments. And I think that this pandemic has shown us that we don't actually get the time to process these incredibly traumatic events because we're consistently working, we have school, we have all of these other commitments. And so I think we need that kind of mental health care infrastructure to ensure that we're taking care of our communities psychologically, emotionally, um, and materially with the kind of resources that everyone needs. But you know, I think there have been some promising wins so far already in the Biden administration. I think something that was really landmark for all of us was um, the repeal of the Muslim ban and the travel ban. Four years ago, so many of us were fighting at JFK Airport to try to stop Uh, mass deportations of our Muslim brothers and sisters. And I think to roll that back is a really exciting opportunity, but we can always go a step forward. And so, you know, as an organizer, I worked a lot um, with this great nonprofit that was called um, the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum, where we did a lot of policy advocacy in 2018 when um, it was at the height of the family detention crisis, when we were finding out that families were being detained together and children were being locked up. And, um, you know, something that I, th- I would really love to see and something that I worked a lot on in terms of policy advocacy is making sure that we're rolling back some of the old, old policies, right? Like there were 1990, 19- I was born in 1996. That was the same year that some of the worst immigration laws were passed um, to retroactively detain and deport Asian Americans um, who were arrested and already served their time for the most petty drug crimes, right? Things that they've already served time for and now they're living with their families, but they were picked up 
um, from ICE records uh, and effectively detained uh, and then deported back to their home countries that they no longer have ties to. So that's something that's deeply important to me, especially as an Asian American and thinking about the trajectory of um, how so many Asians came to the United States. Like we've been tackled, we've been faced with um, horrible exclusionary immigration policies. And I think if we're thinking about creating sanctuary cities at the city level, if we're invested in actually keeping families together, then immigration really needs to be um, at the forefront of the Biden administration. But, you know, as a, as a recent grad, I would be remiss if I didn't mention student debt too. That one's a really- Thank you, yes. <laughs> I cannot tell you. It's, I get scared every time I get a call from Sally Mae or an email telling me that, hey, pay up your payments due <laughs> this month again. And, um, you know, that's especially uh, burdensome as a, as a candidate, right? Many of us um, go, on, go on unemployment to run campaigns full time. Um, so we have to avoid trying to default on our student loans. And that's a burden that we're going to carry for decades down the line unless we actually cancel that student debt. Um, so I'm really hoping that um, I will no longer be at the behest of some of these private corporations and these government loans so that I can actually focus on raising money to you know, earning money to help my family instead of uh, shelling out $700 every month with interest. Speaking of personal burdens uh, involved in running for office, from my view, I think one of the scariest things is just how nasty society can be to you, right? We've seen it in the multiple accounts uh, AOC has given about her time in Congress, and we see it across the board, politicians, anybody who comes to fame, celebrities, musicians, anything. Um, do you have any, th- is it something you worry about? Is it something you think about? Is it something you've talked about with your family and your loved ones? Especially yeah. as a young woman of color, I, you know, I can't imagine it's going to be an easy path, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. It's incredibly hard. And, you know, this is something that even Sahran and I talked about right about when you're putting yourself into the public, you have to really pick and choose where you want to be vulnerable and what stories you're willing to tell people about. Because so much of why I come to office, why I come to running for public office has to do with really deeply personal and traumatic events in life. And sometimes you're on autopilot where you're able to give the same speech over and over again, and it's easy and and you've got it down pat. And other times it hits you harder than it usually does. And you remember the kinds of pain that brought you to where you are right now. And so, you know, for me, it's, it's been hard because especially as a leftist, as a democratic socialist, we have to be committed to pushing the envelope of what's considered respectable or what's considered um, okay to say in the political realm. But, um, you know, I've seen difficulties even recently with the farmers protests that are happening in India, right? We're seeing the largest general strike in human history having gone on for months now, over 150 people who have been killed or disappeared. And I've been called a terrorist for having uplifted these stories for daring to talk about the farmers protest. And, you know, even Twitter has tried to block, is trying to block people, um, who are trying to bring up instances of needing a repeat of 1984, of the 1984 Sikh genocide. So it's incredibly difficult. You know, sometimes the things you get in your DMs are not easy to read. Um, and you, sometimes you have to pick and choose your battles too. Like, do I really want to engage with somebody who is genuinely invested in a bad faith argument? And who do I actually want to engage with? Because I think they can be moved. Um, so it's definitely a negotiation. It's not easy. And I think um, it's even harder in a digital realm where Sometimes people feel more okay with attacking you because you're behind a screen also. 
And because there's no repercussions for it, right? Right. right. Who's stopping them from behaving like absolute imbeciles? Right. Sometimes you do have to just kind of block report and just move on with your day. But uh, again, you don't get that time to process exactly what people are saying to you. So sometimes 50 incredible things can happen to you in one day, but it's that one thing, that one thing that someone says that can tank an entire day sometimes. So it's been tough. But I think um, as someone who's so young in this political realm, you learn how important it is to build a thicker skin because even more is going to come my way. I can already, <laughs> can already see it. Yeah, unfortunately. Well, let's talk about those incredible things that have happened. What's been the most rewarding part of your campaigning thus far? Yeah, I mean, I think something that's just really impeccable is seeing an entire team grow with people who've never even met each other, people I've never even met in person who I consider some of my best friends right now, right? I think that's something that's incredibly joyful and what's really exciting about a a campaign that's rooted in an organizer's mind. Right, someone who actually wants to build people together, wants to build these relation relationships, and that's what we call, you know, relational organizing in like political campaign spaces. This is this is what we do. We break bread together, but now I guess we spend hours on Zoom together, just shooting the breeze. And so, I think um, you know, while it's hard to get to know people online, what's been really beautiful is seeing the work blossom and happen without me having to touch a lot of it in the first place. People are creating incredible content. People are creating incredible structures for a campaign to grow even more ahead of time. And so, you know, I see the love in some of our, in so many of our campaign volunteers who want to bring people into the fold, people who were like already identifying as, oh, they, they should run in 2022. Let's help them run for office themselves. And I think that is what creating the pipeline for new um, progressive politics actually looks like. So um, incredible, incredible stuff. I'm really, really proud of this team. I think one of the things that we're um, seeing right now play out in Congress, uh, the Senate and the House, um, is this uh, incredible polarizing nature of the discussion right now. Because like you said, there are a lot of bad faith arguments that are coming up and these people aren't there to engage in, in meaningful conversation and actually advocating for their constituents. They're just there to, you know, pound tables and be outrageous um so that's what it feels like yeah you're not wrong (laughs) um so given the state of like political discourse right now and how alienating it can be and how frustrating it can be for a lot of people um especially people of color how what are the ways in which people can make sure that they're they're keeping their they're they're holding their local elected officials accountable right because we're seeing like mitch mcconnell only represents like however many people but held (laughs) the senate hostage for however many years or um you know there are congress like marjorie taylor green who Mm -hmm. is a QAnon supporter believes and 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 spouts out these outrageous lies like how are people how can people stay engaged with this kind of really demoralizing rhetoric and and make sure that they're holding these elected officials accountable yeah when they're in office yeah i mean just hearing the stories that are coming out from Cory Bush, Katie Porter, AOC, of just how much vitriol they faced in just a few weeks of the of, of this next congr- congressional session, I think is absolutely wild. But sometimes it's it's really easy to make that feel so far away and to you know see these headlines as incredibly sensationalized that we're just in complete disarray that we have no agency in our political processes. But I think that's the magic of local politics. 
right? Because there are so many local level things that so many people don't even know about because the outreach is a lot harder to get to, to many of our low income immigrant people of color communities. And so, you know, if there's things where you can, you can join your local community board, right? Most people have never heard of their community board, don't know how to get involved. And, you know, you know, like we said, some people don't even know what the city council does, but when they do, um, you know, that that's a moment for radicalization sometimes. And so I think something that's really deep, deeply important to me as an organizer and something that, you know, I've, I've been really happy to work on is, is, is political education, right? Teaching people about what exactly, you know, getting back almost to civics 101 exactly, right? Like how do we power map what our city legislature looks like to actually hold them accountable to this work? And so sometimes, you know, political work isn't just calling up your local elected official and asking how they're going to vote on a bill. Um, you know, over the summer, we've seen some very low lift actions that people are calling for, like, hey, here's a list of all the phone numbers and emails that you can blast to your state senator, to your city council member, or letter writing campaigns that people like to do. But I think people forget that there's another arm of electoral work, and that's electoral organizing, right, around movements and around issue-based campaigns. And so I think something that's been um, really exciting at the city level is, um, you know, especially the movement to kind of defund and divest from the NYPD to reinvest in our local communities and reinvest in um, fully funding our public schools, which are some of the most segregated in the entire country, right? Um, most people didn't know that our NYPD has over $6 billion in their budget and over $11 billion in total spending. So when people find that out, you know, this is like that organizing principle, right? It's educate, agitate, and organize. Once people find out about just how corrupt the system is, they get really mad about it, and then they're looking for action items to, to, to actually go for it. So whether you choose to run for office or you join a local organization or you just join and organize with your friends, that's already the beginnings of something, of holding your elected officials accountable, right? There's so many ways to do it, but I think organizing is how you get it done, right? You start with issue-based campaigns, and I think that's something that DSA is also really um, incredibly great at, at mobilizing people around a certain cause because we have a collective responsibility to responding to some of the worst crises that we're going to see, uh, not just in this pandemic, right? Because people love to talk about, well, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic is revealing all of these issues. It's like, well, you know, it's just amplified them, right? It's only made them, it's only made them worse. Justine, I need to know, I, 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 again, I'm just so struck by the positivity and the energy that <laughs> you radiate. And it's similar, very similar to the vibes Zoran gave, which were mm -hmm. like so uplifting and moving. So what I need to know is what is your MO? What's your like <laughs> self, how do you decompress? How do you recharge from doing this really, really tough work from dealing with people who have made up their minds before you even speak to them? People who, like you said, are maybe not even worth engaging with because there's just no good faith present. How do you how do you do it, girl? <laughs> Listen, it's not as easy as it looks. You know, I think um, sometimes you just have to let yourself feel the really hard emotions. And I think that's what people forget, right? Like people think that, you know, we're all whatever happens on Twitter makes it makes it seem like everything's peachy keen, that everything's going great. But we have our own t times where we need to where we just break down where things are just hard. And you need to feel yourself through that so you can actually pick up and continue doing the work that you need to do. And so, um, you know, one of my one of my mentors, James Coleman, was telling me, uh, who's also like, I think about 21 or 22 years old and just won his city council seat in South San Francisco, which is incredibly exciting. Something that he reminded me of that was 
incredibly simple, but I have, I've obsessed over it for the past couple of weeks is that you need your sleep, right? And, you know, sometimes there'll, there'll be days where, you know, I, I crash on the couch thinking it's going to be a one hour nap and it ends up being five <laughs> and I wake up at six in the morning, right? That happens. But getting the right sleep is how you stay on target. It's how you stay on message and it's how you stay clear on what your vision is, right? Because you, you got to take care of your body. You got to take care of your mental health to make sure that you're ready for some of the biggest fights, the biggest critiques and, and these bad faith actors. And I think something that's been really cathartic for me actually was probably the best quarantine purchase I've made uh, and probably the best purchase I've made in the past like five years uh, is a, a punching bag uh, that we bought that we hung up in our basement. So impeccable stress relief. Uh, I trained in martial arts for over 10 years. So, you know, we don't get to be in the dojo anymore in person. So any chance I get to just kind of like, if I'm frustrated, I'm gonna just knock out a few rounds on the punching bag for like five or 10 minutes. And then I'm like, all right, I think I'm ready to go back to work. <laughs> I feel like I need to take up martial arts now. Oh, like we're gonna start taking karate classes together. You should. <laughs> we had a great fundraiser actually. We were. Uh, I did a self defense class for a fundraiser. Uh, like that's awesome. Like a month ago, so much fun. Everyone's like kind of flailing around, learning how to punch and kick. But it was fun seeing everyone on Zoom. Just trying to, <laughs> just trying to learn. I just feel like the conversation with with you and Zoran. The thing that I'm so impressed by consistently impressed by is how much of an education this has been for for me mm. um and uh, somebody who feels like they're engaged and like aware of topics and issues and and things like that just hearing from you you guys on what's going on in the ground and how you stay motivated and how much and just how you're able to articulate these these seemingly abstract and esoteric concepts and how like now mm. it's really approachable and and manageable and we can do this together has been a real education for me yeah. uh, to really appreciate just the, the, the like level headedness you're able to bring to yeah. the table. Because I, I was watching the impeachment debates, this latest round of impeachment debates in the, in the house. And I was and I kept texting my friends being like, how are they not screaming? <laughs> I would be if I was one of those one of the um, Democratic Congress people going up to argue about for the impeachment article, I would have been screaming. <laughs> we almost died. We were almost assassinated. Right. And you're sitting here arguing against impeaching this man who incited the riots. Right. Um, so I'm always just in, always impressed by people like you and Zoran who are able to to articulate your there's rage there, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh it's it's you're all under to, here. <laughs> <laughs> but you're able to articulate it in a way that uh, allows people to really listen. And I think yeah. that's like I think that's a thing that I'm really learning about like uh, politicians who really mean it and who those are the types of people you need to watch out for. Like they're able to articulate their rage in a way that's uh, effective. Yeah. Um, I mean, listen, we got a we got a whole world to win, right? This yeah. isn't just about New York City; it's about everything else. And I think something that keeps even me grounded, right, is that like um, hope. Something we always say, right, is that hope is a discipline, but solidarity is a practice, right? So, you know, I had an incredible professor, Rupal Oza um, at CUNY, who um, one of the most important things I'll never forget. She told me is that solidarity is a commitment to struggling with each other. So it's not always going to be easy, right? There's going to be those shouting matches. There's going to be times when you just, all you want to do is just rage and vent to your staff. You're just not having it that day, right? Shit, 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 shit just sucks, right? But you have to remember that 
this is how we get to consensus building. This is how we get towards the future that we all want and that we deserve. And I think that's the North Star, right? That, you know, the principle of organizing, right, is that we organize for a future that we might not get to see in our lifetime, but we have a duty to win it for the generations that come after us, right? That, that's just our duty. It's what we have to do. And, you know, that, that's what keeps us going. And I, and I hope it keeps both of you going too, right? That we always have something to learn. Always. I just want to say I'm really tired this week and <laughs> my kids have been going insane and I've gotten no sleep and just hearing you and the energy in your voice, it's, it's doing something. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you for showing up in this way. Um, yeah. I know we're running out of time. Can you share with us lessons you've learned either in your path to where you are today or over your past year of organizing um, at, or directly campaigning? Uh, what have you taken away from this experience or the broader experience that's yeah. brought you to where you are? Yeah. I mean, I don't regret a single thing that we've done so far. I don't regret ever running in the first place. And I would say that I'm so glad that I took the plunge because there were so many doubts, so many barriers that were telling me, ah, you know, maybe you should wait until 2023. Yeah, maybe you should do, you know, wait a little bit longer. But I think seeing that when you put yourself out there as your most authentic self, people feel that, right? People feel that deeply and, you know, real recognizes real all the time. And the amount of love that's been outpouring from so many other organizations, whether it's DSA, the Working Families Party, constituents in our district, that has been one of the most transformative things of my life. And, you know, what, what keeps me going even further ahead is that I don't even know, I haven't even met some of my biggest supporters. I haven't, I haven't even met all the people who might try to vote for me on June 22nd, right? And, and that's incredibly exciting. But I think um, what's really important for me as a lesson learned is that no matter how hard you know, the path is going to be, no matter what barriers are set up for you, you have to chart that path anyway. Because if you don't blaze that trail, someone else is going to cover it up for you. And I, I, I can't thank enough the mentors in my life who have told me to just do it anyway, right? To, to break that mold, to say that we don't have to accept the conditions for how they, uh, as they've been presented to us. So, you know, I, I, I am really excited to see what this can grow, what this can be. And we're running with the kind of mindset that we're going to win it anyway. We've eliminated that out of my vocabulary. Like, oh, you know, if we win the primary, if this, if that, we've eliminated that. We're not saying that anymore. We're, we're running with the intention to win and to transform the nature of what's politically possible here. So it's beautiful, really beautiful stuff. I love it. Faiza, what have you learned? What are your thoughts right now? What are you feeling? <laughs> so many thoughts. So many. All the things. All the things, all the feelings. So I think what I realized talking to you, you mentioned the 2014 medallion crash and before that, the 09 financial crash. And I was thinking, it just hit me right now. This past year, 2020 was so exhausting. Yeah. Even this month, we were recording this in the very beginning of February. This January has been exhausting. So much has happened, right? History is being made. Yeah. But then I, I'm like thinking about, I'm 33 now. The past two decades have been exhausting. Mm. The September 11th, the yeah. Iraq war, the invasion into Afghanistan. I graduated in 09 uh, from undergrad during the height of the financial crash I was scared shitless. I didn't know if I was going to have a job, right? And at, and I that's when I heard the term lost generation, which is mm -hmm. how they describe the generation that grew up in the aftermath of World War II in Japan. Right. 
And I was like, are, is this, is this us? Are we the lost generation? Is this just going to be our lot in life where we make less than our parents did and we stay home until we're in our thirties and everyone's going to be renting forever because the housing market is ridiculous. Right. And I still carry that, that fear in me even now. Um, And so I think the biggest lesson learned is that there are, there's still a lot of hope Mm. that there are people who actually care as much crazy, insane rhetoric there is out there right now in terms of just like straight up hatred and bigotry um there's just there's even more goodwill good faith people who are organizing to make the world a better place and you just have to find them um and you know even though 70 something million people still voted for trump more people voted for for biden right Right. and there's some hope there and we need to hold on to it uh, for for as long as we can, and and people like you who are running for office, Zoran, who's been elected, and there's so many more out there like you um, that are that are organizing, that are doing this work, that no, aren't necessarily running for office, but doing the work on the ground, and and that makes me hopeful, Hell cautiously yeah. optimistic, <laughs> but the optimism is there. Yeah, yeah, you know, we we gotta gotta find our political homes, right? And I yeah. remember I phone banked for Zahran, and I was like calling up neighbors in history. And I was like, damn, I really hope he wins. And then he did. And it was like, okay, now we, we got this in the bag. We got we to gotta keep it moving because it doesn't end with Sahran. It doesn't end with me. It, it, it keeps chugging along. And, um, you know, I think what's also beautiful about organizing in that aspect is that a well-run system is one that even if you drop off, other people will pick up that for you and um, they'll be ready to accept you when you're ready to come back. And that's, you know, one of the greatest lessons I've had in some of the political homes I've been. So, that's my biggest wish for anybody. That's amazing. Thank you. What about you, Mehek? What are you thinking right now? Oh, my God. All these emo things, as always. You know <laughs> Super sexy. One. You know, I'm, exactly. Exactly. Um, I think my takeaway or my lesson learned is something you said that really stuck out to me. Um, in my view, a politician is only as good as the empathy they have. And, you know, so often we get caught up in what is a politician's agenda, what are their views, what's their fiscal policy, what's their, you know, and those are all absolutely critical, crucial things. But at the end of the day, if you don't see humans as humans, if you don't see your constituents as people, if you don't see your colleagues on the other side of the aisle as humans deserving of respect, honor, all of these things, then you're trash in my eyes. And something that I'm so struck by with you is, like I said earlier, the sincerity that you impart when you're talking about your goals, when you're talking about your journey, when you're talking about your campaign and things you've accomplished and the things that you're looking to accomplish. So you said something about um, when I was asking you how you deal with the burden um, of being in the limelight of being somebody who's campaigning. And you said that you've learned to identify who is somebody worth engaging with because they may actually hear you. They may not necessarily change their mind, but at least they'll hear you and engage with you respectfully versus somebody who's just there to demean you. I think that's such an important, important distinction to make. It doesn't mean you're minimizing somebody, Mm -hmm. um, but it just means identifying who is somebody who you can actually just have a conversation with, right? Because at the end of the day, we're all people, we're all entitled to our views. I may think your views, if you're a Republican, are absolute garbage. 
I'm entitled to that opinion, but ultimately, like, if we can speak to each other like humans, like adults, that's really what leads to ongoing change. The mm-hmm. more we silo in our different parties, in our different agendas, there's there's not going to be any progress. Um, right. So that's my lesson learned, that you have a lot more EQ than I do, <laughs> <laughs> even though you're a decade younger than me. So, I mean, hey, we yeah. all need each other at the end of the day, right? <laughs> <laughs> so Justine, um tell people where they can find you and when they can vote for you as well yeah absolutely so we're cracking down we're five months away from the primary the primary election is on june 22nd 2021 uh to learn more about our platform you can log on to our website at justlinecar.nyc that's j-a-s-l-i-n-k-a-u-r.nyc and you can on our website you can find out how you can volunteer you can also throw a couple dollars uh, our way as a donation too. So what's really exciting about the New York City Public Matching Funds program is that um, if you donate even just $10, it gets matched eight times by the city. So your donation of 10 is actually $90. So if you want to support a small dollar uh, run campaign, then that's how you can do it. And you know we're always looking for volunteers as well. So you can go to our website, sign up to be a volunteer, and even the most simple skills is always going to be needed. Whether you want to be on the phones with us, whether you want to um, design an Instagram graphic, we're always looking for people to be on. But, you know, for the for the next couple of months, we'll be phone banking and text banking all of our neighbors. There's no experience necessary. We'd love to have you and train you up. And to follow along the journey, you can check us out on social media. I am Justine for Queens everywhere on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook too. So follow along and I can't wait to see you on election day. Thanks so much for joining us, Jocelyn, and thank you guys for listening. Uh, new episodes drop every other Wednesday. You can check us out on Instagram at The Femdementalist for our latest episodes, behind the scenes, and more goodies. And listen, like, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.